Good morning. I'm Kristen Loney. Today we will be reading from Matthew 24, verse 36 to 44, which can be found on page 830 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 24, 36 to 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. 4 to 25. He gives it on the Mount of Olives, so it's often called the Olivet Discourse. It's his, you come back, when will the end come? And we Worked through that a little bit last week, and uh, there's some real challenges in the text. There's lots of denominations that get formed out of different readings of this text. There's some confusion, and especially when you start to bring in other passages from other places in Scripture, uh, it can just be a lot to hold on to. And so we acknowledged that last week, and I think there's maybe two mistakes we could make. One is to obsess over those things and get down into the nitty-gritty where the goal was figuring out all the timelines and cracking the code. That would be one mistake. The other one would be to just throw our hands up and say it's too complicated, there's too much there. We'll just stay across the surface here and and do a spiritual reading of this and just trust Jesus and move forward. I think both those are mistakes. One takes us off track by, by looking at the signs rather than what the signs are pointing to. And the other one misses Jesus' really important words to his followers. He wants to encourage, he wants to help. I think he actually wants to bring hope to people in this text. And he wants to tell us, like, this matters. This is um, something you should think about soberly, something that should shape how you live. Because how you think about the end of the world shapes how you live tomorrow, shapes what you'll do today, shapes how you engaged last night. And I realize I'm saying that to people in the room who maybe aren't followers of Jesus, and this is maybe your very first time in church or your first time in a passage like this, and you're like, hey, man, I don't don't even know about the end. I don't even sure I'm convinced about how the Bible talks about the beginning, let alone the end of this thing. And so I just want to acknowledge that it can feel like a lot. But let's avoid the mistakes of either tunneling down, even maybe in unhelpful debates or division, or like skimming across the top. And let's just ask God to speak to us with where we are. Uh, I actually want to invite you to do that now. Would you, would you just bow your heads for a second? I don't even know with that little introductory comment of these two mistakes, um, which one you would tend towards. Would you maybe just pray about that for a second? Ask God to help you to engage in a way that puts him at the center of everything, that speaks to you, that affects your heart. Would you pray that for just a second, for God to speak to you 
And then I'll pray for us. So God, you know that most Sundays I stand in this pulpit with a lot of like awareness of my limitations and my humanity and, and asking for you to, to speak and do something beyond what my preparation or my experience or my insight would do. I ask you to do spiritual things in the lives of people every week. Um, and this week, more than most, I'm just aware of our need for you, of our aware, I'm aware of our, our need for your spirit to speak and make application to our hearts for us not to um, tunnel down and get lost or or just kind of have our heads in the clouds so there's people in the room that need need to know that they're separated from you and, and words of judgment in this text um, are your tender loving words to tell them what's true if they reject you so they need salvation God would you would you grant that there are people that um, are so overwhelmed by the details of their lives and the suffering of their lives it's hard for them to see you let alone trust you uh, they need hope and encouragement. God, would you come in powerful ways? And there's many of us who um, just live absent-minded of what these words point to and what your teachings are and the way the Bible talks about uh, what we're made for for the next life. So for all of us, God, would you orient our hearts around, around your truth? Would you awaken us to what is true so it'll change ha how we live? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I have a friend who uh, was a good, a good dude and was going to switch careers a little bit and was starting to dabble in local politics. And he was engaging in things in the community and kind of catching some traction. He was being noticed as a young leader. And so he was starting to do some interviews on some local radio stations and different podcasts and things like that. And we talked one day and he was kind of gearing up for an interview. And it was going to be one of those he feared was like a, a gotcha interview where they were going to ask him questions just to expose either his youthfulness or maybe even like his religious position that he wasn't quite so overt with but was driving how he thought about mercy and justice and love and so he was gearing up for this interview and I just asked him man how are you feeling about it like how are you coming are you like, cue cards how are you preparing and he said oh no I'm not worried I'm not going to ask the questions I'm not going to answer the questions I ask I'm going to answer questions I want them to know and I was like I don't, I don't, I don't really I don't know what that means so it doesn't matter what question they ask me I'm going to answer the question I want them to know. So I actually listened to the podcast later, and that's exactly what he did for like 40 minutes. And by the third time the interviewer asked the same question that he did not answer, they were like, yes, I think we've established what you've told us about that thing. Can you please now answer the question that I'm coming to you with? I thought about that this week with this text where the disciples asked Jesus two really specific questions. What are going to be the signs of these things? And he's speaking primarily of the destruction of the temple. That's what he's told them is going to happen. And then what will be the signs of your coming? When, when will these things take place? What will be the signs and when will, be, uh, when, when will it actually happen is what they ask him. And I think in a lot of ways Jesus, not like my friend who's like has another agenda, but he actually wants to help them see what's behind their questions if you were with us last week, like he answers for quite a while, but not exactly the way that they were hoping. He, he does say what will be the signs, but he more talks about what you should be looking out for rather than how you'll know when these things are actually taking place. So I won't go through all of it, but, but he warns them, he comforts them, he cautions them about persecution and about rumors of wars. And he says, those things, I know it's going to feel like those are the signs, 
Those actually aren't the signs. That's just the way the world will be until the end comes. And when it comes, you won't be able to miss it. So, so what are the signs he answered last week? And maybe you felt like, well, he kind of told me what he wanted me to know rather than what I was really asking, which I think he is in some ways, in a loving way, orienting our hearts so that we see him at the middle of it. And then, and then this week, we jump into chapter 24 in verse 36, kind of midstream conversation. And he's going to answer, when will these things come? So last week was what this one will be when. And because they've been kind of confusing, I zoomed out before we jumped into this thing. And we wanted to ask, why is he even talking about this? So we started with Revelation 21, just to say, like, what's the whole point of this? Why does this matter? Well, what is this whole thing pointing to? Why would Jesus spend time for two whole chapters on this topic? at the end of his life with his followers. And we, we talked about Shin is heading to the new heavens and new earth. We talked about the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things. And we did it both to ground us in the goal of life and eternity and where we're heading. That was one big goal. But also to kind of open up our minds to the way God talks about what's most important. Revelation is fascinating. It's like lots of apocalyptic literature in the scripture. The details are not so much the point. It's, it's the larger picture they're pointing to. The, the idea of Revelation really is about Jesus. It's the point of Revelation is not to understand Revelation. It's to understand our hope and our need for Jesus. That's the, that's the point. Uh, there's a group of women that met in our building last semester studying through Daniel and Revelation. And I had a chance just to kind of introduce the book to them and kind of encourage them at the start of their semester. And I said, hey, all you need to know about Revelation is, is this one thing. It is a story about a prince who defeats a dragon to get the girl. That's it. King Jesus defeating the enemy to win the bride of Christ. That, that is the storyline. If you keep that in your mind, you'll have the story of Revelation with all the bowls and seals and judgments and trumpets and things with multiple heads. All of that stuff is about that one story. The prince comes and defeats a dragon and gets the girl. And then all the imagery of the apocalyptic literature is meant to shape us and change us. Uh, Eugene Peterson says it, it refurbishes our imagination about who God is and, and the nature of sin. So to talk about harlots and to talk about ten-headed beasts, to talk about things that come out of the ocean, to talk about things that swallow things up, is to communicate to us the severity of the world. To talk about the nature of sin. How desperate we are to actually be rescued and redeemed. It, it, it opens up our minds to the bigness and vastness of the spiritual realm. And it not just refurbishes our imagination, but it recalibrates our hearts. It has a way of like shifting us and waking us up and bringing us into the tension of, of what is our story, our, our world. That there is a, a cosmic drama that's playing out. Our lives are very small connected to this larger story but but if we can find our story in this one big story of the prince that comes to defeat the dragon to get the girl then there's tons of hope for you and I think it's true of all apocalyptic apocalyptic literature if you read Daniel and you read things in the prophets in the old testament you'll see this kind of like um, huge imagery things that you look at and just go like I don't even know how to put that on paper I don't know how to, how to draw that or think about that and it's all meant to push our hearts closer to God. So I started this in Revelation to say, where's all this going? But also to open your mind to the significance of all these things. And when Jesus now is talking about how the end will come and when it will take place, I wanted to have that function as well. I wanted to, to refurbish your imagination about what is most real 
So you don't get caught in the mundane day-to-day things of your life, imagining that's all there is. Because you live out your faith in the mundane, but that's not the sum total of who you are or where you're going. And for it to recalibrate your mind and heart so you don't think just the goals of this world are all you're living for. But that a good holiday tomorrow and honoring loved ones on Memorial Day or or finding a relationship that gives significance or landing that job, those things that matter in our mundane, this text says we will keep doing till the end comes, those are not the point or the focus. So, So Jesus, I think in a lot of ways, wants to recalibrate our hearts. He wants to refurbish our imagination because it it gives us a kind of hope to talk about the nature of suffering, talk about the nature of of the trauma that's going to happen, the trials that are going to happen, the kind kind of pain that's going to take place. It helps you be ready for that with hope. And it also creates haste. I think Jesus wants to give us hope and create haste in us. Not, not freneticness, but a sense of urgency and sobriety to say, hey, this really matters. Have hope and take haste. Think about these things because the end will come quickly. And when it comes, those who are ready, those who've trusted Jesus, find themselves with all the pain and all the tears and all the death erased. And those who are not ready, those who've not trusted Jesus, find themselves eternally separated from God. So have hope. Have hope and and make haste. So so that's that's the why. And then what we said last week what the signs were were, were these like predictions about the the real near destruction of the temple in AD 70 that really happened. And we saw that it was kind of mingled or mixed with the promises or images of the second coming of Christ and the final end of the days, as if what was happening with the temple was a a pointer or a precursor to what would happen at the end. And and I just acknowledge multiple times people way smarter than me have trouble knowing when he's talking about one and when he's talking about another because he, he pushes them together almost like the way a mountain range functions. It's a helpful illustration to have in your mind. When you're driving around western Kansas and you see the beginnings of the Rockies, you can't distinguish how many mountains there are, how far apart there are. You just kind of see a hazy mountain. Prophetic literature is kind of like that sometimes. They, they look forward and they just kind of see something. They, they see it and they talk about it, not knowing it will be multiple fulfillments of this. Is this something that's going to happen in cycles? Is it happening really soon? Is it going to happen millennium from now? And they talk about it as if it's one thing. And then what we see throughout history is oftentimes you could kind of fold that out or you could stretch that out and you could see multiple fulfillments. So, so one of the reasons why it's complicated is because that's happening. And also it's complicated when you try to take this text and harmonize it or make it sync up with other passages of Scripture. And it matters like which ones you front load. If you front load Daniel or you front load Isaiah or First and Second Thessalonians, like it depends on what you bring into this text that gets you into spaces where you have some different conclusions. So, so the what was a little bit complicated last week. And I just kind of said, I think the, the what he wants to encourage you with might be maybe a little more simple. He wants to warn us so we're not led astray. That's how he starts. I want to warn you so you're not led astray. I want you to expect there will be groanings and pain all the time before I return. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Those are not the sign that I've abandoned you. Those are happening in a fallen and broken world. He tells him he wants him to expect persecution and he tells them that they can actually anticipate God will keep his promise and then he tells them not to worry they won't actually be able to miss the end of his coming like when it happens they'll see it that's where we were last week and I think he's using that to give hope 
and to create a sense of haste, to, to, to raise their awareness of what they need to kind of put their hope in and how it would affect their, their regular life. So I, as I walked that through last week and I actually re-listened to the sermon, um, it wasn't as bad as I thought. That was good. I stepped down going like, oh, man, that was really bad. If you felt that, I, I'm with you. It wasn't as bad as I thought, but there was a thing I was concerned about. In all of my, like, I'm insecure, or I don't really know, or lots of scholars have different agreements, I, I didn't want to communicate to you a lack of certainty in God's word. Jesus actually says in verse 35 of Matthew 24 that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. As he's answering the question, he wants us to know, not necessarily the question that we're asking. He is telling us things that we can bank on, that we can put all of our hope in, that actually shape the way that we live. The scripture is abundantly clear about what is most important, that Jesus will come back. He'll come back, and when he comes back, he'll make all things new. And the dead in Christ can renew and make all things whole. Those things are clear, they're consistent, they're you can bank your life on those things. You don't have to have crystal clear certainty to engage the text. No, I think when these scholars are engaging these passages, again, it matters what they're bringing into it, but, but they're orthodox. These are like appropriate or or they are possible interpretations. And oftentimes what's happening is in a pastoral heart, they're trying to explain to people how, how to live, and so they want to give some kind of clarity. They take the Bible really seriously, and they're not canceling out one passage for another, asking how do these things fit together. So in the complexity of it all, I don't want you to lose hope. I did try to tell you it's okay if you don't fully understand everything. We shouldn't expect to wrap our minds around the way the end of the world comes or who God actually is or, or what it means to actually kind of trust him for all of eternity and the details that would be beyond our intellect that's okay to say but not in a way that creates a lack of confidence for you or a way that actually frustrates you so, so I want to kind of put those things in front of you and as I reference like lots of other passages maybe it's a good plug for the reading guide what we're trying to do in that little reading guide if you've seen it it's on the back desk back there you can download it online as well we're trying to give you some of those other passages. Like, right, here's what Matthew 24 says. Here's a parallel in Mark or in Luke. And here's some Old Testament passages. And here's the way Paul talks about it in Thessalonians. Trying to give you the different perspectives to come into all of it. So you can actually have hope. And you can live with haste as you ask for the coming of the Lord in this life. To come quickly, knowing that would be mercy. And then live knowing when he comes it would be judgment. So you would want to share. I want to... Let this text push us outward in massive ways. Okay, that is a heck of an introduction to what I think is an interesting passage. I wanted to simply talk about four things. Jesus is going to answer the when this stuff will happen, but he doesn't answer it chronologically. He answers it with a sense of, of quickness. Like when, like how fast will it happen? Not on the calendar when it will happen. And he answers them so that they can understand when he's going to come certainly, He's going to come certainly. He's also going to come unexpectedly. He's going to come unexpectedly. And he's also going to come suddenly so that we can live longingly. There's a certainty, an unexpectedness, a suddenness that leads to kind of a longing that I think Jesus wants to put in front of us. So verse 36. But concerning that day, this is what they asked about. And the hour, no one knows, 
not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, there's a ton right here. At the baseline, don't miss like the main point. What he's saying is nobody knows exactly when it's going to happen. And lots of scholars say that he says day and hour doesn't mean you can know like the week or the month or the year. He's saying you're not going to know. So, so be humble with people, be gracious with people, but be leery a little bit with somebody who has an airtight prediction of when he's going to come back. He says nobody knows. Even he doesn't know, which means we shouldn't read what he just told us ahead looking for a detailed map to crack the code. That would be like a really obvious application of that text. So when Jesus says he doesn't know, that creates a ton of questions for us. Wait, I thought you were God. I thought you know everything. I thought you were in control of the entire universe. One of those things. Here's one of those things where we're like, man, I don't know if I can fully explain. How is it that the one who was eternal took on human form? The creeds tell us that he was able to step into our humanity without leaving any of his deity, not confusing them, not separating them. But Philippians 2 tells us that somehow he, he emptied himself of something as he came into our existence, but not in a way that somehow less, made him less than divine. So again, this is that blow your mind sort of thing. We're not really doing a sermon on the hypostatic union, so I won't spend a ton of time there. But there's simply something about the humility of the Son to take on flesh, to come into our world, that he, he necessarily willingly limited himself to engage with us. And I don't know if I can explain much more beyond that. Here's what's fascinating. It doesn't seem to stress Jesus out. He's, he's like okay with it. So whatever it is, he doesn't feel like it's a knock on his deity. He doesn't feel like it lessens him in any way. He's simply making the point that, hey, I haven't been telling you what you can look for so you have an airtight timeline. Nobody knows. The angels don't know those who are near to God. I don't know, but the Father only knows. But here's what's fascinating about that. There's a, a kind of certainty in the unknown, knowing that the Father knows. I want you to hear that Jesus says, hey, you're not going to know, but that doesn't mean it's not certain. You will be confused. You will wonder about signs. You're going to be in a space where you're looking at the news and wondering what that means and what dots you should be connecting. Know that your lack of clarity does not make it un. Certain For the Father to know when Christ will return makes it certain. And I don't think this is like the way a parent goes like, I don't know, go ask your father. I don't think he's like sidestepping this. I think he's trying to honor the Trinitarian roles that are there in the Godhead. And he's simply saying, hey, you can be certain the Father knows. I will come back. I will make all things new. I will do what I promised. And your hope in that is the, the omniscience, omnipotent God who promises something and then will ensure that it actually happens. The creeds tell us that Jesus' humanity and his deity link together in ways that are mysterious and beautiful and should elicit worship in us. But I think the point of this text is not to unpack that doctrine. It's simply so that you're, you would know, hey, the Father knows. And that's important because there are places where it seems to be slow. His return seems to be slow. So if nobody knows the day or the hour, and it's been now 2,000 years, maybe it's not happening. And we have passages even in the first century written to early Christians who are facing that very same question. Because Jesus says things like, these things will all take place before this generation passes. I think he's speaking about the destruction of the temple, not about the second coming. But, but it all gets kind of wrapped up 
and confuse people. So, so a passage in one of Peter's letters. Say, hey, don't be confused. God's not slow in keeping his promises. He, he is waiting so that actually people might repent and respond. But he's not forgotten. And he's not slow in the sense that he's behind schedule. He's slow in the sense that his, his mercy is long-suffering. The reason why he hasn't returned yet is because when he returns, it will be judgment for those who don't yet know him. That is also certain. The certainty of his return to give you hope is certain. But also the certain judgment that comes when Christ returns. He tells in the book of Hebrews, he came once to forgive sins. And then he's coming a second time in judgment. And those who have not yet trusted Christ will face judgment. And it will be swift and it will be sudden in those spaces, Jesus is saying, hey, you can be certain about this. And again, have these in your mind. It's to give us hope when you're suffering. God's not forgotten. The return is certain. He will wipe away every tear. You can bank on that. And let that make haste in your life. Let that make you move forward earnestly with people. But let that make you be sober-minded as you think about the end. Because the end is certain. Even the idea of this metaphor with, with Noah or this imagery of Noah God told Noah it was going to rain and he's going to flood the earth. He didn't know when it was going to happen, but he told him it was going to take place. There was a kind of certainty that God told him was going to happen. You can bank on this, Noah. And you can just imagine as we jump into that next couple of verses there, the ridicule, the confusion, the ways he's trying to follow God, how, how his neighbors would go like, what, you're building a boat for what? What, what did God say was going to happen? You're putting your hope in that? And that space for Noah to hear God say this was going to happen would give him a kind of certainty, even though it was like hard and difficult. And there was all the things Jesus talked about, persecution and trouble and the, the attempt to walk away or to fall away or to doubt God. All the things that he names in the beginning of chapter 24, surely Noah would have felt. But because God said it was going to happen, there was a kind of certainty. You, you can move forward certainly knowing that Christ will return. Okay, secondly, it's going to come unexpectedly. So look in verse 37. It says, for, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he's going to use Noah's story from Genesis, starting in chapter 6, as an illustration. The same way it came then, that's the way it's going to come for the Son of Man. And there's a lot going on. Like There's um, global rebellion happening. There, there's a judgment in that text. There's a ton of mercy that God would spare people at all in that text. There's a ton of gospel realities going on in Genesis chapter 6. But the point that Jesus wants to make is in verse 38. Here's what I want you to learn from Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So you can be certain about it, but it's going to come in ways that are unexpected. They're just going about their life. They're going about eating and drinking and marrying. And I don't think this is like a vice list. He's just saying they're living their lives. It's very mundane. The same way he says in chapter 24, hey, you're going to hear about wars and rumors and wars of famine. That's just the way life is. Those are not the signs that it's coming. That's the way it will be until I come. The mundane has this like eating, drinking, marrying, and it has these wars and famines and suffering. That is the world that we live in. Jesus is saying it's going to seem like nothing is changing. And so you're going to live your life or be tempted to live your life in the mundane, forgetting that I'm coming back. And there'll be this kind of surprise. It will come unexpectedly. 
which is informative to us, right? When we think about the signs and we, we want to watch the news and we ask, could this be the end? Can we just acknowledge that every generation has seen themselves in the end, all the way back to the first century? When the Rome is collapsing, when, when the Protestant Reformation is taking place, all of the wars, all those things, every generation has wondered, man, could this be the end? And in a sense, the answer is yes. There's nothing that needs to happen for Christ to be able to return. He could come at any moment. That's the way to make sense of these images of coming like a thief in the night and coming a twinkling of an eye. He could come back at any moment. But in the middle of that, he's going to come back in ways that we didn't expect or when we didn't expect. It's going to be going on just the regular ways that life go. And in that space, God will come busting in to actually rescue and redeem, to give us hope and fulfill what he promised, which then also should create the sense of haste. There are signs in the scripture to talk about these things happen before the end comes things repeat themselves so like Thessalonians talks about an antichrist that's revealed and then destroyed and so some would say well that actually means that we have this two-part rapture a rapture at the beginning to take God's people then the antichrist will emerge and then you have seven years they borrow from Daniel's 70th chapter this gets a little bit confusing and then he's going to actually return but we have this idea here of an antichrist has to rise and then he has to be defeated What's interesting, though, is that the scriptures say there are lots of antichrists. 1 John chapter 2 says that there are many antichrists, and every generation has had their own version. When I was in middle school and high school, the first Iraq war happened. My dad was actually in that war. And so it was a massive deal. And if you were alive during that time, or there were people in our church who were not alive in the early 90s, which is fascinating to me, who have like jobs and they're like adults and they weren't alive then. But, but in that space, like, it was the buzz, right? Do you remember that? My pastor wrote a book called Between a Rack and a Hard Place. It was, it was a prophetic guarantee that this is the last day. And then when you were in World War II, of course Hitler is the Antichrist. How could he not be the Antichrist? You come in the Protestant Reformation and they, they thought the Catholic Church was. You go back in the early centuries, they thought Nero was. I think every generation, right? You just go down the list. And I had coaches for history, so I'm a little loose on it. But like you go Stalin, you go, you go anybody you want to go. Name all the biggies. Every generation went, that's, that's it. That's the one that has to be the Antichrist. And First John would say, yeah, yeah. Anybody who is committed to demolishing and destroying the bride of Christ, in a sense, is an Antichrist, could be the Antichrist. I actually Googled, like, how many predictions of the Antichrist have there been? And it was amazing. Like, if you are a Republican, what did you think about Barack Obama's socialist movement? Did you not see in that space all the prophetic utterances? If you're a Democrat, did you not think that Trump was the Antichrist? And then you just go back as far as you want to go. Any side you've been on, the enemy's often been that. I went through, like, even like that Reagan got shot and recovered. Clear sign. It even said that the World Wide Web has been accused of being the Antichrist because of some sort of letters and different things. So they're all. But I think the way Jesus teaches this is to say he can come back at any moment. And he's going to come back in the most like mundane of ways. People get married during wars. People eat during wars. The things that are happening in this text are happening all the time. His point is, as life is just going on as normal, that's when I'll come back. So have hope. 
Because sometimes your normal is excruciating. Your normal is full of famine and wars and rumors of war and all kinds of division and lawlessness and the loss of love. That's where we were in chapter 24. That's what normal is. So have hope. He can break in at any moment and rescue and redeem and purify and help. Oh, friends, and make haste. Because when he comes back, those who don't yet know him are separated from him. In that space, he, he wants to say there's this kind of normalcy. And for the Christian then, it's to do normal abnormally. It's to do regular life knowing our hope is not in this life. It's to do the marrying and the jobs and the engaging with suffering knowing that there's more to come. It's to do normal abnormally. But he just clearly says, hey, this is going to come and when it happens, it's going to feel unexpected because it'll just feel like regular life. That's his point. Before the floods came with Noah, everyone was just doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, this flash flood comes of God's judgment, and it was too late for those who hadn't yet trusted in Yahweh. So it'll come unexpectedly, and then it will come suddenly. I think he's just reinforcing the point here in verse 40. Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and one left. You can imagine why people see here a sign of the rapture in the 70th week of Daniel. And whether it comes in the, the pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, you see in this text like this idea that there are people and then one just vanishes. I think he is saying it's going to come suddenly. But would you catch the theme of the mundaneness of these things? They're just in the field. They're just grinding out on the mill. They're just doing regular stuff. And in the middle of that, suddenly Christ will return. And it's going to come like a flash flood. And what's fascinating about this is the difference will be the preparedness of the person. It's not like those people over there. These are two people together in one field. Commentators talk about this idea of grinding at the mill and normally be like a mom and a daughter or two people from the same household. These would have been close relationships, which helps us think not just about people over there somewhere, but people that are near to us. To have hope and to make haste, believing that when Christ comes, it's going to come suddenly and there'll be people who are separated from him. And when they're separated from him, they'll, they'll just be taken. One will be left, one will be taken. It will happen all of a sudden. And again, his point here, that question he wants to answer for you is how do you wait? That's the point of verse 42. 42 just says that therefore, and he's been talking for 41 verses and he tells you the whole idea, therefore stay awake. If you believe that it was certain and you believe that it was coming unexpectedly and you believe that it was going to happen all of a sudden, it would create hope for you. It would make haste for you and it would change how you live. You would live longingly. The way he talks about staying awake, we'll unpack more next week on the how we should wait, how we should live. But it's this idea that we, we live abnormally in the normal. We have our eyes open expecting at any moment he's going to return. That's the sense of the rest of this section. Hey, any moment he could come back. And if you knew when he was going to come back, you would live differently knowing he was coming back. Therefore, live that way now is his point. Jesus wants to answer their when question but he answers it in such a way that doesn't give them a timeline to look out for or ways that like give them deadlines or due dates or ways that say, hey, he can't come back yet because these signs haven't yet happened. Israel's not a state yet or the temple hasn't been built yet or there's not a, a global antichrist yet. I think the way the scriptures read, he could come back at any moment. 
And it will feel very mundane, unexpected. And it will come all of a sudden. Hope for those who trust Jesus and those who don't face eternal punishment. And in that space, Christians are to live longingly. He's helping his people suffer. He's helping them endure persecution. He's helping them join him on his mission. In Acts chapter 1, they ask again, hey, when will the signs come? When's it gonna, when are we going to know? He says, it's not for you to know the signs, he says. He just repeats what he's told them here in chapter 24 of Matthew. And then he says, but you will go be my witnesses. And you'll go to all of the world. You'll start real close and you'll move out and you'll go to the utter ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses, not because you know when the end will happen, but you know how it's going to happen. And so you live with this sense of longing. You live with a hope. And you live with a haste. And in this text is this mixture of mercy and judgment. Noah's story shows us that. The second coming of Christ shows us that. The cross of Jesus shows us that. This mixture of mercy and of judgment. If those who trust Christ are forgiven and set free, their tears are wiped away. And those who don't find themselves separated, justly receiving the judgment that they deserve. And so, so we think as Christians about how to share the hope of the good news so that people could escape, so people could be forgiven, so that people could actually be, be rescued. I, I slowed us down on purpose in this text because I want us to be an outward-facing people. And I think if you understand these things, the certainty, the unexpectedness, the suddenness, then you will live longingly in a way that changes your conversation with your friends and family. We'll spend more time on that next week, but, but today I simply would just name that. I think this text calls us to join Jesus on his mission to prepare people for his return. It'll be a beautiful challenge. It'll be a comforting thing. It will be about hope, and it will create haste in us to engage this. The same way the cross of Jesus should. We take communion every single week to nourish us with the truth of God's mercy and his judgment. And that his mercy expressed itself in him taking our judgment upon himself so we could escape the wrath of God. For all Christians who are trusting in Jesus, what we celebrate in communion is, is a sign, a symbol, a reality of where your hope is actually at. And if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you just to stay in your seat and pray. It's okay for you to have doubts here. It's okay for you to struggle. It's okay for you to not know. Well, there's lots of things that we don't know and understand. But if you're not yet ready to trust Christ, there's prayers in the back of your bulletin that will give you some examples of how you could ask for God's help. Because what I'm saying applies to you. There's a certain promise Jesus made. And I realize you're not even sure if he's real. You're not even sure if he's God. You're not sure if he's trustworthy. But he promised he would return. And when he returns, it's going to happen quickly. And it's going to happen unexpectedly. And part of his love and mercy to you is to speak that to you even today so you could wrestle with the truth of who he is. Would you just wrestle with him? Don't come take communion if you're not trusting Christ. Just stay in your seat and wrestle with him and ask for him to speak to you. He's not blown away or frustrated or overwhelmed by your questions. He can handle all of that. And for those who are following Jesus, I want to ask you to come and take communion. We simply tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. There'll be servers at all the aisles. They'll be gluten-free here in the middle. Come remembering that the one who promised his return made a way for you to be forgiven and set free so that when he returned, you could be with him rather than separated from him. That's the hope that we celebrate in communion. Would you bow your head with me for a second? I'll just pray. Jesus, thank you for your words. 
thank you for the way you answer our questions. Uh, you're not like my friend on a podcast who's kind of playing games and not trying to get caught. You actually are trying to instruct us. You're trying to help us. You're trying to teach us. You're trying to change us and transform us because you want to give us hope. So would you do that work this morning, even while we take communion and are nourished by the truth of your sacrifice? Help us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready, and then we'll sing together.